Well, thanks for those readings. Friends, it is wonderful to see you here this morning. And um, we're going to start with a scenario. So you have a time machine. When and where would you go? Uh, I'll give you just a couple of seconds to, to ponder that. Um, and, and as you're doing that, I, um, I hope you enjoy this type of question. Um, I certainly do, and I, I certainly love hearing what other people think. Okay, you, you probably have enough time to sort of form your own initial thoughts anyway. Let me explore um, some of the responses that I came across on a website during the week. Uh, this website had literally hundreds of responses that were quite um, varied, but there were some common themes coming through. Uh, a big one was people wanting to, to fix something from the past. Uh, so they, they'd done something, and they, they would just love to go back and to fix that up. There was this, this, this idea of regret coming through. Um, one stood out to me, I, I'm not sure what you, we make of this one, but this, this guy said, I would go back to when I was in med school, and instead of horsing around as I did, I would slog like a donkey. And he goes on, if I'd learned disciplined studying slash working then, I would not have this kind of a mess on my hands now. And um, sort of wondering, Joe, I wonder, I wonder what's happened. Uh, that's not great in, in the, the medical sort of industry. Um, others, uh, their disappointment that their regret was more relational. And so this type of response was, was very common. I would go back to the summer before Dad got sick and Mum died and relive those last few months with my parents. I would relish every moment. Again, a very common theme. Treasuring moments which at the time, as they were living through it, just didn't seem that precious to them. Others, of course, as they always will be with a question like this, a hypothetical question, they didn't really get into it. They started saying, well, you know, it's not really the past that matters, that's not important, it's more about the future, so focus on that. Um, not, a, not a particularly fun group, um, I would suggest, those guys. Um, but the most common response, people wanting to go back to the glory days, you know, some, some key moment in their life where they unlocked some, some, some life event that was just so significant for them that it meant so much to them at the time. It was just a great moment. A bunch of people spoke about sporting events. Uh, some spoke about a graduation. A, a bunch spoke of the birth of a child. Uh, whatever it was, that they would just love to be able to go back and, and to relive, to re-experience that moment. Now, to come to us here today, I, I don't know what your response was. But I, I, I suspect that as followers of the Lord Jesus, we might give a similar answer. Uh, we might uh, ponder visiting some, some golden moment from the past. But I do wonder if at least some of us might look a little further back. So not so much to a, a golden moment in our own lives, but, but much further back to some perhaps decisive moment in church history. Um, I occasionally talk with church history buffs and um, th they will often talk about going back to some significant church council. Um, I actually chatted to Mandy during the week and, and she said the Council of Nicaea would be her fifth choice 
about where she would go with her time machine. Um, what I make of that is she's probably not as big a church history enthusiast as I thought she was. Um, but even still, uh, number five. But, but Christians, I think, often, I think this is the number one answer. We talk about wanting to see Jesus on earth. Um, we, we, we think about, wouldn't it be great to hear him preach? Wouldn't it be amazing to see him heal? And what about the cross event? To see that as emotionally mixed as that would be. And then to experience life in the early church. Uh, we tend to think of life in the early church as, as a bit of a golden era. Um, as we've been going through Acts, I wonder if you've been thinking about that yourself. Now, this morning we're going to focus on that. Again, so, sometimes we can think of the early church in Jerusalem as just being an amazing time. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to, to be there, to experience that, to see tens of thousands of people turning to Jesus? to see the apostles healing the sick, to experience the, the community life that, that just sounded incredible. It was a couple of weeks ago we heard about in the early church there was no one in need. And that wasn't because of some new government program. It was because the church cared for each other. Uh, they were united together in heart and mind, united in the gospel, and so they loved each other in very practical ways. And so... As we read about the early church in Acts so far, we think this, this sounds like an incredible time, a golden era in the church, and so why wouldn't we want to go back and experience that? Well, where we're up to in Acts, our passage this morning brings to a close this focus on the church in Jerusalem. Um, as Sarah actually mentioned in the kids' talk, soon we're going to hear about the gospel going out all around the world, uh, smashing through geographic barriers, smashing through social barriers. And so what is the final word on church life in Jerusalem? Was it a golden age? Well, what we're going to hear this morning is that even though the gospel had changed people, even though the gospel had produced obvious signs of love in God's people, this section is going to bring to a close and really tell us that the church back then was by no means perfect. Problems came up, solutions had to be found, and I'm going to suggest that it's the same for us today. And so let's take a look. Uh, verse 1 identifies the problem. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, so there's a problem. It's to do with this daily distribution of food to the widows in the church. And from this historical distance, we might be wondering, well, what is that about? Why are, why are widows getting this daily distribution of food? Now, of course, we've got to remember that back in, their, back in the day, that there was no social security. And so when church members were in need, the rest of the church was expected to step in and help because there was no one else. Now again, that didn't mean that every widow was automatically given food and cared for and so forth, provided for in that way. No, no, when it comes to that type of care, the Old Testament and the New Testament deploys what we, we sometimes call the proximity principle. 
Uh, all that means is that the closer you are to someone relationally, the more responsibility you have to care for them. And so for widows, well, they didn't automatically start receiving gifts from the rest of the church. The first responsibility lay with their family. Now, that's clear in the Old Testament, but it's also clear in the New Testament. And so, for example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, from verse 3, it says, Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family, and so repaying their parents and grandparents for this is pleasing to God. And so right there, we're seeing this proximity principle. But what happens if, if there is no family to care for this widow? Uh, well, then the church steps in. And that's what we're going to see going on here. That the church family were providing a daily distribution of food to those widows who had no one to care for them. But a problem popped up. The Hellenistic Jews, and so here we're talking about Jewish converts who predominantly spoke Greek, so that's the Hellenists. They complained about the Hebraic Jews, so they're converts who predominantly spoke a Semitic language, probably Aramaic most likely, but they may have had a bit of Hebrew in there as well. And so what we've got going on here, these, these Hellenistic Jews who predominantly spoke Greek, complaining that their widows, so the widows who predominantly spoke Greek, they were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Um, that was the claim. And look, there's no suggestion that it wasn't true. So I think we, we should take that as fact. Uh, these Hellenistic, these Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. Now, let me suggest that while that's the presenting problem, um, it's most likely that there were some other contributing factors going on here. And one contributing factor would have been the rapid increase in the size of this church. And so as this church is getting bigger and bigger, the, the number of widows that are part of this church is getting bigger and bigger. And as that happened, the amount of food that was required to feed them and how to distribute that food, all of this became far more complex. And so I suggest part of the problem here is that the underlying structures just didn't keep up. Mistakes were made. People were missed. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm confident that that was a contributing factor is because when the apostles recruit the seven to oversee this ministry, one requirement is that these, these new people must be full of wisdom. Okay? And that's actually quite important. They must be full of wisdom. And you think, well, why wisdom? Well, in the Bible, wisdom, I think, is, is a bit different to how we think about wisdom today. Uh, wisdom in the Bible is not some proverb or some abstract principle or, or idea or saying. Wisdom in the Bible, it is practical. Now, broadly speaking, we might define wisdom in the Bible as knowing how to live well in this world in a very practical sense. And so at times, wisdom can refer to a specific skill. Exodus 28 verse 3 God gave the tailors a spirit of wisdom. This, this spirit of wisdom enabled them to do an outstanding job sewing the priest's garments. 
And so that's one example where God-given wisdom was a skill and very specific, very practical. It was sowing. Or another example, that, that famous request of King Solomon. He asked for wisdom. God granted that request. That, that's what we're told in 1 Kings. But it certainly wasn't wisdom in every area of Solomon's life. Solomon was actually ultimately a fool. Uh, read through 1 Kings 1 to 11. That's very clear. He was a fool. The wisdom that Solomon was granted was very limited. God gave him this specific skill, this, this specific skill of administering a vast kingdom. And in context, we see Solomon exercising that skill straight away. He discerned the real mother of a disputed baby. And so again, wisdom in the Bible is, is practical. Often, it's a specific skill, it's know-how, it's, it's sort of understanding to know how to do these things. And it's exactly what the seven who were chosen would have needed to oversee the distribution of this food. It's exactly what they needed as this church was just exploding in size and, and more and more people needed to be cared for and the, the amount of food and how to distribute that became much more complex. Now, let me suggest that that, 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 that problem, that struggle with scale, with growth, continues today. Uh, for us, as, as our church continues to grow, we, we certainly pray that that would be the case. It means we need to keep adapting, um, updating, improving how we do things. Um, this is not easy. Uh, let, let me say that right, right from the start. It's not easy. Uh, we do need God to give us wisdom as we think about how to do this. And the reality is that we don't always get this right. Um, sometimes people are neglected. But in saying that, let me say, I think we've seen some wonderful changes, even, even the last few years as our church has grown. We might think in our welcoming space, I think we've improved tremendously. I think we are doing a better job caring for the, the sizable numbers of, of new people who join us. And I think it is worth thinking this example through because uh, so much needs to change as a church gets bigger, particularly in the welcoming space. Because it is easy to welcome someone if they're new to a congregation of 50. Um, in that sort of setup, in that scenario, most likely the minister would actually very easily spot out the new person amongst them and the minister might invite them around for lunch that day and the minister might follow them up over subsequent weeks. One person can do it. That doesn't work in our church. Uh, we might have 10 new people on any given Sunday and those 10 are scattered amongst 400 of us who regularly, adults who regularly come on a Sunday. And so just spotting the new person amongst us is actually very difficult. And there is certainly no way that, that one person can welcome all of those 10 people, that, that one person can invite them around for lunch that day, that, that one person can then follow them up during the week and, and in subsequent weeks, whilst also welcoming and following up the 10 from the next Sunday. Uh, one person can't do that. For a church our size, and for a church so blessed with newcomers, 
for us to welcome and integrate all of the new people who join us, well, we need a team of people to do that. And that team, they need to work together. That They need clearly defined pathways, structures, procedures, so connect cards. Uh, welcome lunches, Christianity Explored, Faith Explored, growth groups, ways to serve. All of these things is what we need. And so as, as you grow, the way you do things needs to change. If people are to be cared for. You, you could keep doing the same old thing as you got bigger, but people wouldn't be cared for. They'd be neglected. And so one thing that means for us here at Christchurch is that we need people to join these teams. Uh, We need people to take on more and more responsibilities right across our ministries if we are to do a great job in in every aspect of church life. And of course, one big initiative this year is in the pastoral care space. Let me me speak to this for a moment. Um, I'm sure you've heard about the Equipped to Care course. I think it's really important. All of us, I think, from time to time need this type of help. But how do we do that here at Christchurch? Well, again, you think about in a smaller church, you can just get away with one or two people being the key figures in that space. Often it might be the minister, and often you might have been able to give the minister a call, and and maybe they might have been able to pop around that night. Well, again, it doesn't work when you've got many hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of members at a church. Again, we need a team of people to do this and they need to, again, work together with very clear systems and processes. That's what we've got to do. We've got to make sure that people are cared for if people are not neglected. And I've got to say, I know that some of us find this particularly difficult. Uh, We are so used to a minister of the church visiting us in our time of need. And because that's the expectation, sometimes we can be very disappointed if our growth group leader visits us instead. Or if a member of the pastoral care team gives us a call instead. Or if actually another church member pops around. Um, I I do get that. I I totally understand your disappointment. It's just not what you're expecting. And let me say that it's very disappointing from my perspective as well as a member of the staff team here. Uh, We would love to be able to be there for each of you personally. Again, the sheer numbers of people we're talking about means we just can't do that. But I also want to say that that is not a bad thing. I actually think that church members, and, and not necessarily staff, caring for each other actually gets us closer to the New Testament model of ministry. Because the New Testament model of ministry is not about the minister or the elder doing the ministry. It's about the church family caring for the church family. And so what that means is if the ministers are doing their job well, if the ministers are equipping the church to serve one another, then this type of pastoral care will be exercised, will be done by our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, Let me be super clear. There are some issues that that Dave in particular will definitely need to drop everything and get involved in. Uh, Thankfully, those are rare, 
And again, usually the first person to talk to with pastoral care issues is your growth group leader. But here's the thing, we're going to hear more about how this works at 1045 when Mandy gets up a little bit later on. So let's come back to Acts. And we'll just recap for a moment. What I'm saying is that one contributing factor to the neglect of some of the widows is this problem of scale. It was a church rapidly increasing in size, and and as that happened, distribution of food and and so on became all the more complex, and they just didn't have the structures in place. That's a problem that growing churches always face. But it certainly wasn't the only contributing factor. There was also this, this whole cultural divide which is to say that there was a social difference between those who predominantly spoke Greek and those who predominantly spoke one of the Semitic languages. Now, why do I say that? Why why do I speak of a a social divide, a social, a cultural divide? Well, we could think of our our case here in Australia. Uh, We have English-speaking churches, but actually there are a whole stack of church services around Sydney that are conducted in other languages. And, and when you see that, it's not just the language that is different. There's, there's a whole lot of stuff socially, socially and culturally going on that is different. Um, to use just one example, I, I went to a Sudanese church uh, to preach there, and, and that was all done through translation and so on. But there were many, many differences, that church, to our church here in English. Um, the Sudanese church started with 30 minutes of drumming, Uh, That was an experience. I wasn't told about that. I wasn't sure when I was going to finish. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to call an end to it or what. Um, But I was told that when I got up to preach, I would then need to bow before this prominently displayed Bible. And I I could go on and on. I mean, there were so many things that were similar, but there were certainly many cultural differences. And so again, when, when when we see a difference of language, it's not just language. Uh, Normally, it's social, it's cultural. And certainly that was the case with the Hellenists and the Hebraics. The Hellenists, their cultural background would largely be derived from outside of Jerusalem. At some point in in their family history, um, as members of of God's people, they were part of the dispersion. So they would have grown up in in a very mixed social setting. And they would have been impacted by that. Losing their traditional language was, was really just one indicator, but, but many would have happened. And of course, we know that we don't always handle differences well. That's what we're seeing in this passage. Uh, we don't know why exactly the Semitic speakers were treated better. Uh, it may have been because the church at that time was largely full of Semitic speakers, and so they sort of perhaps ended up looking after their own? I don't know, but that's sort of pure speculation. But, but we know the general problem. We struggle to handle difference. Humans, we, we struggle to accept those who are different from ourselves. And what that means for us today is that we can expect to see those same problems. Now, just like the problem of scale, we encounter this problem of social or, or cultural differences bound up with linguistic differences. Now, before we get to that, let's look at the solution that the apostles came up with. Note that they didn't just appoint a few people from each group, so some Hellenists and some Hebraics, to oversee the ministry. Um, You think, well, why wouldn't they do that? Well, 
I suspect if they did that, there's a fair chance that each of them would just look after their own. And that's not what church is to be like. We ought to be united together. And so they didn't do that. They actually appointed representatives of just one group, of the Hellenists. And we know that because when we look at the names of the seven who were appointed, they are Greek names. Now, that's not a surefire way of knowing that they were Hellenists, but it's actually a fairly strong indication that they were. And I take it that that's a pretty clear statement that preferencing Semitic widows cannot continue. No cultural background is any more important than any other within the church. And that's why the group that had been discriminated against now oversee the distribution. That's back then. What about today? Uh, We've got to be aware of bias. Uh, We all have this tendency to to preference uh, people who are similar to ourselves. But the gospel says no to that type of special treatment. The gospel says that because we individually belong to Jesus, we now belong to each other. And so we can't preference one group over another or one ethnic background over another or one linguistic background over another. And so we're working on this at Christchurch. At the moment, there's an initiative to see Christchurch become more accessible to those with English as a second language. And so we're moving towards translated sermon transcripts. I think that'd be great. We've now, I think, Meeting now or very soon, we've got an English as a second language Bible study meeting at Andrew and Jess's place. Uh, These are great initiatives. But actually, this, this principle of not giving certain backgrounds preference actually applies in so many other areas that, that we still need to keep thinking about. How do we integrate both the young and the old? How do we integrate the able-bodied and the impaired. Which means at the very least, what we all need to be doing is examining our own hearts. Interesting question is to ponder, what do we want this church to look like? What do we want? Do we want a church that is just like ourselves? Well, we shouldn't want that. That wouldn't be right. What we should want is a church full of those who love the Lord Jesus, and it doesn't matter their background. And so, friends, that's certainly worth pondering. What do we want this church to look like? Now, as we move to verse 2, uh, we, are, we are really flying this morning, aren't we? Um, Um, Look, don't worry. I'm not touching Stephen's speech. Um, We've actually set that aside for uh, you guys to look at in your growth groups. You might have done it already, um, or you've got it coming up this week, but you won't be doing these verses um, in your growth groups. Um, So let's move to verse 2. I've already mentioned the problem of scale. Again, means here at Christchurch, we've got to keep raising up more people to take on responsibility and serving. We've seen that. What I want to focus on now is the reason that is given for choosing these seven to oversee this distribution. Which is to say, why didn't the apostles just do it? Why choose someone else? Notice what the 12 say. It would not be right for us 
to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. What do they mean by that? What they're not saying is that overseeing the distribution is just not that important. Caring for people in need in the church is extremely important. That's why the apostles devote people to that job. So it's not that the ministry wasn't important. But they didn't do it themselves because they knew that if they did, they'd end up neglecting the ministry of the Word of God and prayer. And as they say, that wouldn't have been right. And so what we're seeing here is this priority of the ministry of the Word of God. You think, well, why why is that? Why, Why is the ministry of the Word of God and prayer... Why is that a priority? I think it's self-evident. At the very heart of the Christian life is hearing God's Word. So you, you think back to Jono's introduction this morning, so many wonderful things about church life. But hearing God's Word, that is foundational. That's why we meet every Sunday. It's why we meet during the week for our growth groups. It's why our teachers here prepare so thoroughly the proclamation of the Word of God to God's gathered people. That is so significant. It is just foundational to the Christian life, to our life here together as God's people. And think about for a moment what happens, what comes out of this proclaimed Word of God Well, let me suggest it's a a flourishing Christian community. That's what happens when the, the gospel is preached. We see a growing church. We see people being changed. We see fruitful disciples. And so from this ministry of the Word of God, we see ministries multiplying. We see people being cared for. We actually see the whole church speaking God's Word to each other. The whole church spurring each other on. And I I want to be really clear about this. That some amongst us have this specific ministry of speaking the word of God and prayer. Well, that doesn't mean that they're to be the only ones who do that. That is not how this works. Every follower of the Lord Jesus is to speak the word of God. We can see that in, in Acts Joel in the Old Testament spoke about the coming of the Spirit and how in that day the Spirit is going to be poured out on all of God's people such that all of God's people would prophesy. Well, in Acts 2, the Apostle Peter picks up that quote from Joel and says, well, that day has come. And what that means is we should expect all those who know Jesus, all those who have this Spirit, we should expect them to prophesy. We should expect them to speak the word of God to one another, to encourage one another, to build one another. And so it's no surprise in Acts, as we'll hear in weeks to come, that two of those chosen to wait on the tables in this passage end up being key evangelists in the chapters to come. So what's going on here? Well, the teachers in the church, these, these, um, those set aside as authoritative teachers... 
They're not to be the only ones who speak God's word. Rather, their role is to equip all of us to speak God's word to each other. And that's why the ministry of the word of God, that is the number one thing as a church that we must never neglect. It's just foundational for everything we do, for who we are. And so let me say, that is why it is so great that Christchurch values word ministry. Uh, we have a big staff team here. Uh, that means that people like me, uh, I can work hard at my teaching. I'm freed up to do that. Yet it's wonderful that we can do that. It's a right priority that we have at this church. But let me explore this a little further just for a moment. What this priority of, of the Word of God what it means is that we, we can't just be focused on today, we've got to be focused on the future. We've got to be raising up future Bible teachers. Again, th these two things go hand in hand. A robust priority of the, word, of the ministry of the Word goes hand in hand with this need to raise up the next generation of Bible teachers. It's so important. We need a pathway for more Bible teachers. And so again, I think that's so wonderful that here at Christchurch that we actually support the ministry apprenticeship program that we have running. And let me say, I think God has been very kind to us. We have had and we do now have excellent ministry apprentices. Um, we, can, we can look forward with joy to where they will end up serving. And I say that because they might not necessarily end up working here, they might be teaching God's Word somewhere in Australia, somewhere around the world. That's why we run that program. We are committed to the priority of the Word of God. And so we've got to be raising up the next generation. Let me draw this to a close. You've got a time machine. When and where would you go? Let me suggest that if you're looking to the past for a golden era, you're not going to find it. Even within the early church, there were problems. That's how it's always been. It's how it is today. Uh, we're not a perfect church. Problems pop up. Problems pop up all the time. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and find solutions. We should and we do and we, we work hard at that. But we won't find perfection this side of heaven. But if we are looking for a golden era, we've got to look to the future. That's where it is. The only time when things will be perfect is when the Lord Jesus returns. But what do we do in the meantime? We keep battling on, don't we? We keep going. We keep speaking the word to each other. As God's people, God's family together, we encourage one another. We build one another up and we look to include more, we look to, to speak to those who don't know Jesus. And we can be confident as we do that. Because even in the midst of, of problems, even when we ourselves might be feeling neglected or we might be thinking, I'm not certain I've cared for this other person appropriately. Even in the midst of that, the gospel is unstoppable. Acts is very clear about this. The gospel is unstoppable. As we speak God's word, more and more people will come to know the Lord Jesus. 
and the golden era will come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us to each other. And thank you that as circumstances change, you do grant wisdom. You do help us to find solutions to care for all. We thank you that even though we are all different, we are one in Jesus. And Father, we thank you for the word of God. May it continue to shape us and grow us as we look forward to the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.